The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any the fintech and Cambrian funds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Tang. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting with my friend, Rocky Ghani, and our guests are Rex Salisbury and Nick Manolinich. Both have been our guests before. Nick is the founder of This Week in Fintech. He has been a key organizer in building a fintech community, building together fintech enthusiasts all over the world. Last year, he also started the fintech fund as Solo GP. Rex is the founder and solo GP at Cambrian VC. He started Cambrian previously in 2016 to cultivate a community focused on founders and builders in fintech. His community building ultimately led him into the world of venture, as he ultimately became a founding member of A16Z's fintech practice, investing in companies such as Tally, Deal, and Oyster Technology. In today's episode, we discuss the latest updates from this week in fintech and Cambrian, Nick and Rex's experiences as Solo GP and their perspectives of the latest fintech ecosystem and what to look forward to in 2024. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, Nick and Rex, welcome back to the Wharton Fintech Podcast again. We're very excited to have you both back on our show. Thanks for having us. It's good to be back. Yeah, honestly, I... Personally, I've listened to both of your episodes before I even got to Wharton, so it has to be a full circle moment for me. Uh, and for our listeners, I'll let uh, links to our previous episodes with Nick and Rex in the description. Um, so maybe just to start with Nick, last time we spoke, you mentioned that you started this week in fintech as a newsletter, where your vision is to build it into a tech crunch version for our fintech community. Can you share a bit more on what's the latest progress and what has changed last time we spoke? Yeah, definitely. It's been a while. Um, and thanks for having me back on the on the episode. Um, I think, you know, Rex and I are, are walking similar paths here um, with community building within FinTech. And it's been a pretty exciting couple of years. We actually just had our 2023 offsite a couple of weeks ago where we brought the whole team together, um, which is always nice because people are located so globally. We have 22 people on the team now. And so it's brought in from one newsletter to we have um, ten writers, seven different newsletters, a lot of regional coverage in Latin America, Southeast Asia, China, and Europe, and a, and a new African newsletter as well, um, as well as two fantastic podcasters who joined us to to run our podcast. I know Rex also um, does a lot of fintech podcasting, um, and we've since we last talked added an online community as well in Slack with uh, eight thousand members, and so. It's grown a lot. Now our question is, you know, what do we do with all of this? What do you do with all of it? You just, you left us with this cliffhanger. <laughs> well, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. Rex, we spoke not too long ago this year. So where we talked about like your incredible progress you've made with Cambrian and your excitement for what's coming to FinTech. Uh, could you catch us up today on like, do you maintain the same level of excitement with the FinTech community? And what's taking up most of your time and energy over the past eight months? Yeah, so I, I definitely maintain my same level of excitement. Um, I think there's one kind of permanent reason why that's still the case. And then 
two kind of a shift since we last talked about why this case. So let's talk about permanent reason. One is the market is as big as it's ever been. So if you look at financial services revenue in the world, fintechs have only captured about 2% of it. And that's in about 15 years of building. So you could look at that and be like, oh, that's depressing. We've like done all this work and we've got like 2%. Or you could look at it the other way around, which is we have built some massive companies and we've only scratched the surface. So 98% of the opportunity still remains. And we also have better teams and better infrastructure. So the next generation of fintech companies should be able to build and scale faster. And so for me, as somebody who's thinking about investing in, you know, multi-decade or at least decade-long trends, you know, it took us 15 years to go from zero to 2%. I think we can go from 2 to 10%, 2 to 20%, 2 to 30%, may- maybe even like 2 to 50% in the next 15 years. And that would be huge because that would mean, let's do 50% just because it's a round number. That would mean $6 trillion of revenue would be flowing away from incumbents and towards fintech companies. And maybe it's not you know, translational where it moves away from and into, maybe the market grows and shifts, but that's going to be fascinating to watch. And there are going to be some really big companies born as a result of that. And there are also going to just be big shifts in the ecosystem. Because if it really is a zero-sum game, we're going to see massive changes in the banking system, the payments ecosystem, and a lot of other areas. So that's one, is just the market opportunity We've scratched the surface. Going from zero to one is often kind of the hardest part. Now we're going to start to go from that kind of one to end. And that's really exciting. And then so so big opportunity, same, same as before. What's new is I think the markets have started to update in a way that's very positive for fintech. So call it four years ago, three years ago, bull market, all revenue is good. Fintech companies can grow revenue faster because you can grow low quality revenue quickly through things like lending. That was meant fintech companies were some of the most valuable companies going out into public markets, some of the most valuable companies in the private markets. Then when the market turned, people were like, oh, actually, not all revenue is created equally. Fintech revenue, kind of complex, not necessarily good, all fintech bad. And so then we also saw the steepest drawdown in fintech. And now what people are starting to do is realize there are good companies. And there are bad companies, and they're starting to learn how to assess the difference between the two. And frankly, one of the, one of the ways you're able to do that is it's not super complicated. It, it used to be there are very few profitable companies because the market wasn't telling people to get profitable. Now the market is saying you do need to get profitable, and you're starting to see publicly traded fintech companies and privately held ones do that. And that's a great proof point if you can go out and say, hey, we're still growing north of 100% year over year, and now we have 45% EBITDA margin. So Wealthfront, for example, recently shared they crossed the 200 million in revenue mark. They also have 45% EBITDA margins. They are growing 140% year over year. And so, you know, a few years ago, Wealthfront was not cash flow positive. It's like, how how big can you get? How fast can you grow? Is this a good company? Like, it's kind of hard to know until you start producing cash. Fast forward a couple more years, it's like, look, now we're doing 45% EBITDA margins comparable with someone like Schwab who has 50x the scale. And so, as you start to pull apart what's going on in you know late stage markets and then show that there are actually really great companies, that gives investors and founders and other folks the confidence that like, okay, we should still be building. And that learning is trickling down the ecosystem. So one, market opportunity is big as ever. Two, the investor ecosystem is starting to learn how to evaluate good versus bad, which is great because at the end of the day, we only really want to be building good and interesting companies. So those kinds of companies I want to 
want to back. And I guess there's a third thing, which is just seeing the momentum within my own portfolio has been awesome. You know, Nick and I invest at a similar stage. We do a lot of pre-seed and pre-seed is almost always pre-product, pre-revenue. It usually takes quite a while to get to re- quite a while being a relative term, three, six, 12 months, maybe even a little more because in financial services, you often have to build a lot. It's highly regulated, complex products. Once you start launching and building though, and now that we've both been doing this for, you know, two-ish years, you're starting to see some of those portfolio companies start to build and get to revenue. So I recently invested in a company, every that got from like zero to 1 million in revenue within six months of launch. Not within six months of starting the company, <laughs> but within six months of bringing the product to market, which is great. So just seeing that in the, my own portfolio as well is super exciting. So long, long-winded answer, but hopefully uh, gives you some some context. Oh, that's awesome. Love to hear the, the optimism. It's really, really exciting. I'd love to touch on fintech communities, given that's a top of mind topic for, for the both of you. Uh, the two of you have arguably built two of the most impressive fintech communities with, I think, 20K plus members each, although you, you probably have the latest numbers. Um, and I know every VC likes to say they have a community, but say like very few actually have something that goes beyond a Slack channel that no one actually uses. So could you, can you share some insights on how you've been able to build such a successful community? What are some of the design principles, key decisions you made that you'd attribute that success to? We were just talking about this at our offsite, and the answer, you know, the same way that Rack was saying, we have to continually evolve how we think about different fintech business opportunities. We feel like we have to continually evolve how we think about community building. Um, community building, unlike the work that we've done previously, tech companies, you don't have a product moat, you don't have IP, there's no sustainable, notable differentiation that can't be copied by another community. And so I think for us, the question we always ask ourselves is what can we actually do for the people within our broader networks that nobody else is doing for them right now? And if we find something that really works, guaranteed within three, six, nine months, there'll be somebody else out there, you know, copying us and and offering, you know, the same events, the same online spaces and the same newsletter that, that we're offering. And so it puts the pressure on us to always reinvent ourselves. And so we try to take a really product-oriented approach and just say, what's nobody else doing right now or able to do right now for the fintech community that we can do for them? And I'm sure that you've you know taken a similar approach over at the Warren podcast where you're just finding opportunities to do things that haven't been done before. Fintech is such a massive space now after it's grown in the last half decade that there are a lot of people writing about it. There are a lot of people podcasting. There are a lot of people with different Slack groups. I think I'm in 20 or 25 FinTech Slack groups. I'm sure Rex is in the same amount. And so the answer will change. If we have this podcast every six months, the answer will change every six months. But it's just asking ourselves what, what's not being done right now. So this year we experimented with doing an entirely online job fair where we, have, we had about 200 people sign up to do a job fair. Um, we have continued to do the in-person networking events. And three years ago, we started uh, the FinTech Formal, a black tie charity gala for FinTech. This is going to be our third year doing it. We'll see if we end up doing it for a fourth year. It just kind of depends you know, what people are getting out of the experience. And so we're constantly collecting feedback. We're constantly having t- people tell us what they don't like about what we're doing or what they wish we did more of and finding ways to, to do that. Because um, community building at the end of the day, I think the one kind of line you could draw around all of our initiatives is it has to be about what provides value to people in the community, not about what value you can, you know, take or extract from them. And it's something that I admire a lot about Cambrian as well. And what Rex has built is um, you're finding ways that you can 
take this network and get value to trickle down to or be exported to all the members who are participating in it. Uh, whereas I think you'll have investors who start with investing first and then try to build a community. And it's kind of very obviously a lead gen funnel to their own investing uh, opportunities or to support their own portfolio. Um, where, you know, that that's a good way to just create a community that, like you said, nobody uses because people realize that it's not about directing value to them as community members, it's about taking value from them. Um, and so that's constantly the question we're asking ourselves is what can we do that'll be more useful for the people who are participating here? And um, we're pretty happy that, you know, it's gotten us where we are. We just passed 80,000 subscribers to the newsletter and 8,000 people in Slack and, and 20,000 people at the events. Um, where we've been on five continents now. Australia is the last holdout. For some reason, we just haven't been able to do an Australia event yet. I'm sure we'll get there. Um, and maybe even Antarctica one day. Um, but all this stuff is is in the past. We have to keep asking ourselves, you know, what are you going to change about that in the future? Because you want to write a newsletter on FitTech headlines every week? Great. Well, so do 20 other people. And they're all going to write. And, and you know, it's going to be very hard for the you know person off the street to say, hey, this is the one I prefer versus that one. Um, and so continue to figure out ways to, to drive value to people for participating where they feel like grateful that they were able to join as I think is really key to what we're doing. Yeah, I'll go back. And I think talking about how you start a community is very different from how you scale it or build it over time. But I think you start, the best place to start is just from a kernel of authenticity and not thinking about scale, not thinking about like what exactly you want to do because people thrive when they feel like they have an authentic connection to something interesting happening. And so I'm sure the main reason Nick started with what he did was he was just personally excited <laughs> to be understanding what was going on in the fintech ecosystem and wanted to write about. It. And it turns out that other people did too. For me, the thing that I started with was people who are building product in San Francisco, just bringing them together to talk about that. So I started, it's like six, eight years ago now doing small in-person events in downtown San Francisco. And then the community grew from there. So Cambrian, the community, back when it was just a community and not me now running a venture fund, was primarily monthly events in San Francisco and New York, quarterly job fairs, biannual summits. What is Cambrian today? I have not done an in-person event other than one co-founder matching event two months ago. That was the first one I'd done in like three or four years. So to next point, like what you start with is not necessarily at all what you end up with. Um, what I'm actually spending more of my time on now from a community perspective is very different. I try and do very small in-person events um, with founders in the portfolio, but also looping in um, other folks from the ecosystem. I've got 20 plus founders who are all LPs in the fund from a lot of brand name fintech companies you've heard of so often bring those in. So small scale in-person events with founders. And then I'm also trying to do uh, more content, experimenting with podcasts, with just, you know, regular social posts, LinkedIn, Twitter, but then also experimenting with video. So if you think about community as a triangle, I used to be in kind of this, this middle section of the triangle where I was doing these like somewhat large-ish scale in-person events. And now I've kind of moved up and down. So I do smaller in-person events and try and do bigger, like, you know, broadcast of content. Um, <clears throat> and I found so far that's been something that works pretty well for me. But Again, in another two or three years, I don't know. Maybe I'll start doing some more like in-person large events if I feel like there's some way I can do that and that's authentic and interesting and also <laughs> scales well with my time. 
Um, and then I do have a Slack community I run that has a bunch of fintech founders in it as well, which is now mostly, you know, self-sustaining in terms of people joining and having conversations uh, on their own. But I, I think the other reason uh, community works really well in fintech um, in particular is it's such a naturally networked space. If you want to build a product, you need infrastructure partner. Um, you need probably some sort of regulatory licensing that you acquire either via a partnership or directly. You need to have lots of expertise from different people with different backgrounds. And so community in FinTech, I think, is more powerful than, say, community and building a social app, uh, where it's kind of permissionless innovation and you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle, or even community in an enterprise setting, where, again, it's not that same kind of networked ecosystem because of the regulated nature of what you're building. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to see both of you continuing to innovate on your respective communities. And I think one point just to highlight, uh, if you alluded to, Nick, it's you know, most VCs start with being investors and then create a community, but the both of you have gone the other route. You had communities first, and now you've become investors. So curious to hear a little bit about how your community efforts complement uh, tactically your your investing efforts. Yeah, it, it's a good question. I think Rex and I come from different angles at the uh, solo GP route. You know, I, I spent most of my career as an operator before, and Rex, uh, you know, was a, was a fintech investor in house for a long time, and it it I found that I've enjoyed and learned a lot from talking to Rex about deals and collaborating with him because there's a lot of perspective you get uh, as a former VC that's not immediately apparent or intuitive as a former operator. Um, and so, uh, similarly, you know, to your question about how do you take value from the community you built and funnel it back into your own investing activities, I think that's going to depend a little bit um, on you know, what your own background is. Um, for me, I kind of think of the role the community plays as breaking down into three buckets. Um, one, and, and, you know, I, I would guess that Rex would agree with this, is um, it definitely helps with sourcing, with putting you in touch with great founders, with helping you reconnect with founders that you might know who are starting to do the founder journey or do their first fundraise, um, who you haven't had a chance to connect with recently. The second is it really helps you back channel on early stage founders. We're doing pre-seed and seed stage investing. And so much of that underwriting is really founder dependent. It's less about what's the immediate revenue opportunity and more about, is this the right team to be building the right product at the right time? And so being able to back channel on those founders with the entire community and being able to pull some people that they worked with before, people they worked for before is super helpful. Um, but then the third, and I think this is actually the most important for us is just portfolio support. Um, the role that we like to play as non-lead investor and you know the second or third biggest check in the cap table in these early rounds and um, somebody else is is playing the role of lead investor and helping the next round get done, but we're really doing kind of everything fintech related in the background. So helping them get their first hires on board, helping them get in touch with the decision maker at right, the potential customers or at right, their partners, um, helping them select between different infrastructure vendors um, and in service providers and, and get better pricing out of them. You know, all of that we can do through the community network, and that's really our bread and butter of supporting founders. So something you know Rex touched on, and I'm surprised you didn't go more into, is the co-founder matching he's doing. Like that's entirely predicated on on the community. I won't, I won't steal Rex's thunder, and so um, I, I'd love to hear more about that because it's something that he does that I really admire, and I think is is so cool, and I haven't seen anybody else doing. Um, but really saying, okay, you know, the the growth part has been taken care of. You've built the community, but growth really doesn't matter a lot without effective curation. 
how do you take all these disparate nodes within the community and actually create value between the nodes by making the right connections at the right time? That's really where we try to lean it as an investor. Yeah, and I, Nick and I do like we're both just authentically interested in what's going on in the ecosystem, so it makes it very easy to try and do all this work without thinking directly about like what exactly the value comes back to. You're like, I just want to have a seat at the table and see what's happening in an ecosystem that's going to change rapidly. And then as we talked about before, like fintech is naturally networked. So like my pitch to founders from an investor perspective is I provide network connectivity through my own personal networks and through the networks I built through the community, which is very similar to how Nick thinks about doing it. And that's super valuable because exactly like Nick said, you need you need your first hires, you need your first infrastructure partners, you need your first channel partners, you need your first customers, which communities can be incredibly helpful at sourcing customers uh, if they are selling into other fintechs, which there are actually a decent number who are doing that, or even not selling to other fintechs, but selling into other financial services institutions, right? So communities are naturally positioned to help with those things are some of the most important things you can do for founders at the earliest stage. And then also provide network connectivity because you know if you're investing in pre-seed and seed, all the upstream or downstream investors know who you are and what you're doing. Uh, but I think what's great about it is doing that work is actually value additive to all of the parties, I think relatively naturally. So um, Nick talks about like, oh, it's, it's a great way to do back channeling. But actually, the, the way that happens is in a way that helps all parties. So founder comes to you, they're just ideating. They're not even raising. They're saying, I want to explore this thing. And you're like, oh, you should talk to this person who has built this before or whose infrastructure you will need if you want to build this product, who therefore will also maybe know of other people who have tried to build this before because <laughs> they would need their infrastructure. And so what you then get is you can be helpful to the founder, so that reflects well on you. Then the founder gets connectivity to someone in the ecosystem who can be helpful to them. And then you as the investor also get to understand from that person you sent them to, like, how are they approaching are they approaching this well? Um, you can check in with them in a month and say, like, oh, is this person moving along? And it's like, yes, they are. They're actually doing a bunch of stuff. So a lot of the work you're able to do as an investor within the confines of a community actually creates value by doing something as simple as back-channeling. Um, which is great. And I think not enough investors really think about how do they try and take all the components of the investment process and just do like a little bit more work so that the way in which you do it also helps create value for all the the parties involved. Um, and so that's one of the fun things about running communities. I think there's a lot of it that if you do it well, it like actually dovetails nicely and not in some sort of like sinister, dark, like, you know, like trying to hide that like you're like also invest, uh, like it just naturally one thing flows from the other. So I think you, you both alluded to it, uh, just the the concept of being a solo GP and running a fund um, by yourself. I would love to learn a little bit more about how that structure has been most helpful to you both and maybe what have been some of the biggest challenges in, in being sort of a solo GP. Yeah, so I, I will say I absolutely love it and it's been a great decision, but you know, the activation energy I think is the hardest part. You have to decide to do it. You have to spin up your fund you have to get like, you know, the legal, the paperwork, the fund administration services. You have to upfront, you know, cover some of that expenses in cash. And that's just a lot of like mental load upfront and uncertainty. But once you do that, you can, you know, hire people to help you cover a lot of that work. And I'm basically through that period now, although there will always be stuff that comes up that I now need to um, address. So 
I think the thing I like about it most is it lets me focus now that I've done a lot of the kind of like <laughs> grunt work to get running on doing the things that I love. Uh, whereas if you work inside of like a large investment firm, you will now, as the team scale, spend up to 60% of your time on internal stuff. Like Mondays and Fridays will be completely blocked off for all GP pitches. You have one or two team syncs. You have like a couple of board meetings. And all of a sudden, the amount of time you have to find new companies to invest in, um, or if a founder texts you like and needs support on something that day, like your schedule just gets crowded by cruft of being inside of a large organization. So being independent allows you to move with a lot of velocity. And that's something I love about um, doing this job as a solo GP is that I get to focus on doing the work that I believe is value add um, to myself and the fund, but also to the founders I support without a lot of cruft. Um, and then two, and this is something Nick can probably relate to as well, and I've seen firsthand is that you're able to be more collaborative as a solo GP than you are inside of a, at least a large multi-stage firm. So we're a large multi-stage firm, you're leading investments, you are writing a larger check that crowds everyone else out. And so it's very hard to work with other folks in the ecosystem um, perspective. Um, but that trickles down into making you just harder to work with generally, which makes you less able to provide network connectivity, which makes you in some ways less helpful as an investor. So one is just being able to do more like real work that adds value. And two is being able to collaborate more to with the ecosystem, which makes you a better, more networked individual, which makes you a better resource to the founders you support. Yeah. You know, hopefully in a, in a few years, Cambrian and the fintech fund will both be large multi-stage funds and we'll be back to being sharp <laughs> that's elbows. Not my, that's not my goal. My goal is not to be two sharp elbows. Billion dollar yeah. funds and we'll be back on this podcast competing with each other and, you know, trash talking each other. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I couldn't agree more with everything that Rex just said. And I, I think the last point is, is an especially important one is everything community driven, um, benefits from being a collaborative person by nature and, and being a solo GP and, and a non-lead check writer or somebody who's not um, beholden to a certain ownership levels just means that you get the opportunity to support the founders you love and co-invest with the co-investors that you enjoy being on cap tables with. Um, and that really just makes uh, the job incredibly enjoyable. Just like any other job, you get to work with people that you like um, towards a common goal. Um, I, I'm glad that Rex went first on that one because he has the basis for comparison of having previously been an investor um, in-house with a firm where, you know, this is relatively new to me. And so I don't really have the point of comparison um, having been an operator beforehand. Um, my perspective is, is, is I never focus on what's going well and what's going right. I'm always looking at what's going wrong and what could be improved. I think that's just kind of my natural orientation. And so, um, we started funds, you know, both around 2021, which was the gold rush for being a solo GP. You know, those those are the boom days. And I think there are a lot of people who rushed into it out there who, who may not really have had a great grasp of what they were getting themselves into and the level of ongoing commitment required for, for managing a fund over time. Even if you only raise one fund, the level of work that you're going to have to do is, is material over a long period of time. Um, and so now, uh, a few years into it, you know, I find myself being thankful that um, I started this journey as a solo GP, but being thoughtful about um, what comes next. And maybe that's continuing to be a solo GP. Maybe it's finding more people to collaborate with. Uh, maybe it's expanding 
Um, you know, it's always an open question. Uh, and so I think a lot about that bold phrase. Um, if you want to, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think that that's a big role that the community plays for both of us is it helps us go far. It helps us scale ourselves. It helps us sustain. It helps us not limit our bandwidth artificially by being teams of one. But while being a solo GP was incredibly helpful to get off the ground and go fast, um, I've also realized that there are limitations. Uh, it's really helpful to have a sparring partner who can push back on your assessments and say, hey, actually, this is a bad decision, or actually, this is something else you should consider that you haven't yet. Um, and it's nice to just share the cognitive load with others who are working towards the same goal as yourself. And so I think what a lot of people um, who themselves have not been so GPs don't realize is it can be incredibly lonely sometimes. Um, you are uh, both playing the support role for every founder in your portfolio and you're the biggest cheerleader and you have to you know, keep them positive and make sure that you're there to help them celebrate their successes and uh, commiserate with them on setbacks. Um, but then you're turning around and you're effectively building a company yourself. And it's not the same level of complexity as building a tech company. You know, you're not taking a gamble on a new product. You're not hiring a big team around you. Um, but you are basically putting a big target out there that you'll be graded on and it can be incredibly stressful. And so getting to, you know, <laughs> back channel and accumulate a plane and, um, you know, just level set with people like Rex and other solo GPs is really helpful too, because um, it can be a lonely road and it, it's kind of like, you know, being an Olympic swimmer, like you're judged on your individual performance rather than being judged on a team performance. Um, and so um, there are parts of it that I really like decision velocity, uh, you know, the ability to, uh, you know, be self-directed and, and collaborative. And there's parts of it where, um, you know, I can see the benefits of, of getting to work with the team. And it's just about managing that trade off and being thoughtful about how it evolves over time. Yeah. I guess I'm a little more positive on being a solo GP. I think there's <laughs> some of that maybe comes down to personality, but also um, I do think you benefit dramatically as an investor of working with other investors early on in your career it can be very, very helpful, which one of the best ways to do that is within a large firm because then you're like working very closely, understand how that firm works and how individual partners think. But you can also get some of that as a solo GP outside of a firm because you collaborate and co-invest with a lot of investors. And so you actually, you have different kinds of learning in both contexts. Um, for me, as somebody who's like clearly seen the trade-off between the two, and by the way, I had an amazing experience with my team at A16Z and I had a great time there. But when I look at the trade-offs I get to make between operating on my own versus inside the confines of a large firm, it's like I prefer the trade-offs on this side of things. Um, <clears throat> And we already kind of covered it, why why I think that uh, is the case. Um, I think that, you know, secretly a lot of people inside of large firms wish that they could be solo GPs or, <laughs> or maybe not even that secretly, or if not solo GPs at very small partnerships of two to four partners, um, because they just realize there's so much other stuff you end up getting sucked into um, when you're inside of a, a much larger firm. And like, that's, that's just the natural consequence of scale. Um, it's not, you know, like any individual organization is like, you know, bad in some unique way. It's just complexity increases with scale. The combinatorics of having lots of relationships and internal teams that need to communicate with each other um, 
So anyways, I, I guess another thing about being a solo GP, usually people have smaller funds. So this is like kind of an obvious point for some folks, but doesn't always get touched on is it is way better to be a top performing investor running a smaller fund than a large fund. And you also get more asymmetric upside if you do your job well and figure out ways of scaling over time. And that could be scaling, raising a large fund and becoming a lead investor. Or it could be scaling uh, growth vehicles uh, down the road. And so like, there's just, I think also, you know, it's more exciting from that perspective, but I wouldn't do it for that reason. If you're like thinking about it, do it because you're like, this is the thing I want to do. And I think it's the best way to go let me do the, the job that I want to do in the venture ecosystem. Yeah, there, there's been some data going around recently from Cambridge on top quartile performance and what that means over years. And um, if I'm remembering this correctly, in the last 20 years, uh, top quartile performance for VCs has only passed 3x DPI in one year of the last 20. Um, and uh, somebody who commented on this was Chad Byers from Sousa, who's done very well with Billy Sousa Ventures. And he said, you know, our first fund, we were lucky enough to find some big winners and return 5x. And the reason for that um, is primarily because it was a small and focused fund. And then the fund math remains, you know, really undefeated, where if you have a strategy, if you have a sourcing advantage, if you have something that's differentiated, um, don't raise more and try to deploy more than your strategy actively supports. Um, you know, be able to make sure that you're not diluting your competitive edge by, you know, managing a big fund. And so there's all the trade-off when you do so well early on as an investor that you have the opportunity to think, am I, you know, personally optimizing for the 2% or the 20%? And some funds, you know, really grow into large multi-stage funds. And there are really good reasons for that. Um, you know, being able to uh, support uh, an opportunity fund or go multi-stage um, or have a practice where you're able to back the founding teams that you like all the way through their, their you know, IPO. Um, but it it's a different strategy and it just changes the dynamics of decision-making. And at a large firm, you can get wrapped up in the politics sometimes. And you can find that the investment decision is by consensus more frequently than uh, as an outlier. And and this is a field where we are, you know, like Craig said, the asymmetric op opportunity really exists around finding outliers, not around making consensus-driven decisions. Um, and so I think it's a huge benefit to be able to stay lean and mean and, and as a small partnership, make quick decisions and then move ahead and, and support the founders that you end up backing. So I, I couldn't agree more with Rex on that point. Yeah. I think being independent, um, you can also learn a lot more because when you're inside of a large firm, you usually write one or two checks a year. And so that means that over the course of five years, you can do like 10 investments. And you learn the most from the companies that you are actively supporting and have a direct relationship with the founder. When you're inside of a large firm, that is dramatically curtailed. And in an ecosystem as broad and as complex as financial services, I think you become a better investor and better able actually to support your founders to the extent you have, you know, you obviously can't be writing hundreds of checks a year. Like there's a natural limit in terms of your own time, but the optimal number in terms of you being the best possible partner to your companies is not writing two checks a year because it means you just don't have enough lens into what's going on in the ecosystem. So I write 10 to 15 checks a year, and I think that gives me a much better lens into a broader view of what's happening in the ecosystem, which satisfies my own natural intellectual curiosity more about what's happening and also allows me to support the companies better than if I was doing way, way, way fewer checks. 
Um, so I think that's super rare. But I think it's also a natural jumping off point to talk about venture as an asset class and what's going to happen. Uh, we're talking about how small funds historically, and I sent you guys the tweet for that data on the Cambridge Associates stuff, um, is changing over time. And I think we are going to see a massive change. Venture used to be very much a cottage industry in the US in 2012, about $20 billion was deployed per year. In 2022, which this is, you know, kind of a little bit lagging. So basically some of the bull numbers in there is I call it 200 billion. So 10x growth in terms of the amount of dollars being deployed. And if you look at AUM in the category, you know, starting to cross trillions, where that's where it becomes a, goes from being like a cottage thing to actually like institutional scale. And if you look back at how asset management businesses have evolved in other categories, you go back to the 1980s, that's when you saw the emergence of BlackRock, Blackstone, and Vanguard, which are three massive asset management firms that have very different takes. Blackstone being a massive private equity player, BlackRock being a large kind of diversified holder of various kinds of investment vehicles, including low-fee ETFs, but also other strategies, and then Vanguard being low-fee passive ETFs, the category they kind of really pioneered. So you saw this massive expansion. So I think we could see something similar in venture where you see some very large firms start to emerge. But, and this kind of relates to what's happened in hedge funds and for mutual funds, I think you're going to see fee compression and alpha competed out at the later stage. So you are not going to be able to charge 2 and 20 on billion dollar funds in the future. I don't think that's going to be possible. Maybe like one or two names or three names will be able to pull that off, like maybe, but I think generally there's going to be fee compression over the larger dollars of AUM that get deployed because financial markets tend to become more competitive over time. They tend to figure out how to ingest information and compete on alpha. And so this is another reason why I like being a very early stage, not even a solo GP, but just focused on the pre-seed and seed is I think the only durable part of the venture category in which you can have consistent alpha is going to be at pre-seed and seed, where there's not readily available market information. It's more about relationships and networks. And the founders want to work with the best networked individuals because it gives them the best you know, unfair advantage in terms of having an outsized success. And so I think pre-seed and seed will be a place where you can have, you know, enduring alpha and i think it's going to start to get competed away even at the series a's but certainly at the series b and beyond and series a and b's is where a lot of the traditional multi-stage venture firms deploy most of their dollars and and even the you know the definition of well networked is changing to that point um you know as the volume of venture dollars is 10x the size of tech as the industry has also changed significantly over the last 15 years and so you know, to Rex's point, in 2010 and 2012, if you're starting a venture fund, you know, being well networked might have just meant that you were really well embedded in San Francisco or Silicon Valley. And what LPs wanted to see is that you were a multi-sector investor and were able to take bets across a variety of industries through your own personal network and have uncorrelated outcomes in the portfolio where, <clears throat> you know, a rideshare company might not make it, but a social media company might do fantastically well. Because tech is so large as an industry now, having a good network has become much more specific to the subsector that you're working in. And so being somebody you know like Rex or myself where your background is in fintech is incredibly helpful to fintech founders. I personally would be a very, very bad 
social media or mass market consumer web investor um, because those aren't my networks. But within fintech, you know, we can be really dangerous and, and, and helpful to our founders. And I think that that applies to um, subsectors like healthcare. It applies to insurance. It applies to other regulated industries where, you know, one, being having expertise is really helpful. And two, having a network that's specific to the founders that you're backing is incredibly helpful as well. And so I think, you know, my bet is, is I'm betting on Rex and I'm betting on myself. I think that you're going to see more sector specialists perform well in this next venture cycle because tech has become so large that there really are returns to having specialist networks and specialist expertise when you're making early stage investments and supporting early stage founders. If I may kind of jump back here a little bit, I wanted to ask a follow-up question. Um, I, I'm like fascinated by this discussion on like venture specifically, but just wondering from a fintech perspective, given where we are, like wrapping up 2023, where do you think we currently fall, Rex? You kind of kind of alluded to earlier that there are still huge market opportunities. Where do you think we'll evolve in 2024? I think, I mean, we're going to talk about year-long timelines that thing that's easy to talk about is just market activity for different kinds of funding rounds. So if you, Nick and I both um, invest at the pre-seed and seed, pre-seed and seed has been very resilient in terms of number of deals done through the cycle. It's actually been pretty consistent even with when the market was very bullish. What's changed is the dollar value of those deals has fallen because prices have become more reasonable. If you look at series A rounds and B rounds, those have fallen off a cliff and are way below where they were before. But it looks like looking at Carta data that it's starting to tick up. And then anecdotally, using data from companies in my portfolio, actually, Nick and I just had a joint investment that's going to be raising a Series A right now. Um, there are more and more companies that are starting to go out, raise Series A's, and do so in very competitive processes. So I see the Series A market as starting to pick back up. And again, this comes from, as we talked about before, it used to be like, all fintech good, then it was all fintech bad. And now it's like, well, actually, there are some good companies and <laughs> they are also now appropriately capitalized. They didn't raise a massive seed at a crazy price that makes it very hard in the new pricing environment to do a Series A. So we're going to start to see more deals done at the A and the B, which will be great because it means you know we've got another set of companies coming out to do, do interesting work. I think it was Term Sheet DA that said, you know, every deal maker in 2023 is basically going to get a mulligan on what they did over the last year. Uh, and I, I feel like it's it's true. You know, nobody's really judging their performance through a year in which you're going through a big reset on valuations and round sizes. It does feel, I am feeling very optimistic about 2024 relative to how I felt coming into 2023. And I think the dynamics that Rex talked about really support that. You have a lot of companies building without the scar tissue of having started during the hype period um, and developing kind of bad practices around getting used to the easy availability of money and overhiring and overpaying for your marginal customer. You have a lot of people who started their businesses, you know, after 2022 and developed the conventional lean startup methodology and I think are going to, to Rex's point, raise really a creative series A is because they were thoughtful about how they deployed and leveraged the resources at hand because they grew up in this time where venture was more scarce as an asset. Outside of venture alone, I think that there are a lot of tailwinds for fintech right now. And so the shine 
definitely came off after 2021 for a lot of investors and a lot of people who rotated in the categories, employees or investors rotated out and they're probably all working at AI companies now. Um, but within fintech, you have these really compelling tailwinds where, you know, one, a lot of talent entered the space when fintech was really hot and didn't leave. And these are people who've developed such matter expertise around fintech in the last, you know, two, three, four years and are staying here and are, you know, great potential hires for early stage companies. Um, you know, two, you have a lot of people who um, hit home runs, but then saw those valuations and, and equity values compress a little bit after their companies got acquired or, or went to market. And so they're hungry and they're starting new companies now and they're taking their next big swing because they really want to hit a home run themselves as a founder. Three is you have a ton of fintech infrastructure companies, banking as a service, um, you know, partner banks uh, that has facilitated getting a fintech product to market so much more quickly than you could, you know, even just five years ago. I remember in the early days of building Pedal, stringing together our partner bank and our operating account and our processor and our network and our issuing bank was just such a pain because none of these companies had connected to each other or anybody else before. And now you can really get a fintech product off the ground pretty quickly, not just in the US, but in multiple different geographies. Um, and you finally see banks waking up and saying, hey, we can't be complacent with the retail banking offering that we depended on for the entire history of our financial institution. So it's time for us to partner. It's time for us to compete head on. Um, it's time for us to you know meet customers where they are. And I think that that is a really good indication that fintech is real. It's here to stay. Uh, people are voting with their feet and their dollars and choosing to sign up for fintech products. And uh, you will probably have a lot of conventional financial institutions that become the customers of the next wave of fintech companies or become the investors of the next wave of fintech companies or partners as they make sure that they're also staying relevant. Um, so I am incredibly excited about the next decade, not just the next year, because I think that we are kind of at the tail end of the great reset. And now it's all about the opportunity at hand for the next wave. Yeah. <clears throat> and I want to give an actual piece of advice related to what's going to happen in 2024 for your listeners. So if you want to, if you are already working in fintech or you want to get into fintech, I think you should think very hard about joining any company that has announced a series B recently or announces a series B in the next six months. Because those rounds have fallen off a cliff, the companies that are raising series Bs now are default good to very, very good. And then we also, like Nick and I are bullish on FinTech and think we're at this like another kind of inflection point where that picks back up. So you have a period of time where getting into those companies is before they like raise at crazy prices or like lack of discipline comes in. So th I think there's like really great time. I, I think this is also true for investors. Like I think not enough investors are like looking really hard at doing Series Bs. But for talent, you want to join a mid-sized company with growth because nothing else is going to propel your career. And right now, any company that's raising a Series B and announcing it, like 95% confidence that company is default good to very, very good. A year or two years ago, any Series B, it was just noise. Like you had no idea it was a good company or, or it was a good company, but it was so mispriced, it didn't matter. Um, and so this is great. Like this is, if you are an MBA, you're like, I should move to San Francisco and I should try and join any fintech company that has raised a Series B recently. 
Um, or if I hear through the networks that they're like, you know, have an announcement that they're about to. Uh, and I think same for a lot of executives who are looking for the next thing, because we've had this massive contraction. Uh, and so there's just not as many jobs out there as there used to be because large tech has slowed down hiring. But it used to be like, oh man, I don't want to join all of these companies that are like overvalued and doing layoffs and have all this like cultural debt. So even if you're a senior executive, before you would look at all these private companies and be like, that, that seems like a terrible idea, <laughs> right? Whereas now I actually think there are some really, really great ones where you're going to get much better risk adjusted return and more rewarding work by joining those kinds of companies. And so I'm excited to see that because once you start to, you know, reactivate all of those networks and awarenesses, I think it's going to be super interesting for, you know, the, the whole ecosystem. All right, got to give one more bit that's related to this vice because I think Dick and I probably both get this question a lot, which is like, I'm interested in from MBA students, like I'm interested in venture. How do I get into venture? Um, so this is the recipe if you are an MBA student that I think has the most, like the highest likelihood of success. That is move to San Francisco. Oh, New York is probably okay too. And join a, a mid-sized company with growth, which would be any company that's raised a series B recently. Work there, learn some stuff, build a network. Then probably what you'll be like, is actually venture isn't that interesting. It's fun to just build stuff, which that's a great outcome <laughs> too. Or once you have that network, then you like, and your company does well, you start doing some angel investing and you start building, you know, in years two, three, four, building a portfolio and then end up in venture. But the best way to do it, I think do it well is a, like actually learn about the ecosystem, join a company that's doing really interesting work, build a good network so you can be informed as to whether or not you want to do that career path and then do it. So if you want to break into venture, I think you have this, like, that's the way to do it. To run a mid-sized company with growth in San Francisco or New York. And right now it's easier to identify those companies than it has been historically because the market has been so impacted. Anyone who is raising at that level is default. Aki, have you packed your bag and ready just to stay in San Francisco after graduation? I love the love for San Francisco. We're both in San Francisco right now. And I think uh, it's good to have fellow believers. Um, and yeah, that's great to hear. And, and Zoe, did you have another question about- I think New York about... creates too. I think it's more of like, you should go to whichever city you feel like you vibe with culturally more. I personally feel that way in San Francisco more than I do in New York, but New York has a great ecosystem too. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I will, I would love to, uh, maybe just one last question. I will, I will actually love to sit here all day and chat with you too. Um, but maybe one last question around like Gen AI. Um, how this kind of, we see this technology potentially be a game changer for a lot of sectors. And then FinTech, I think is no exception. So just wondering like, cause a lot of investors have different views around Gen AI specifically verticalized use for FinTech. Um, do, how do you see like opportunities for FinTech is using Gen AI and have you, cause you guys are both investors. Have you been making bets in this categories? I separate out my belief in the long-term opportunity from my belief in the immediate investability of the category. And this is a little bit to Rex's point earlier about, you know, how fintech is only 2% of the way there. Um, there will always be platform shifts and new platforms that redefine how any service is offered. Um, the emergence of web was a huge one. The emergence of mobile was another. And the emergence of AI and, you know, possibly even decentralization um, are going to be two more disruptive sh platform shifts. And so eventually, yes, generative AI is going to be a core component of how financial services across the spectrum are offers to consumers and are made more effective. 
Right now it's so new and so early that it's really hard to get a sense for where the opportunities are. And if you're pitching a FinTech plus Gen AI product right now, you're probably pitching something that's operating on the application level on top of all these LLM providers um, that doesn't really have a lot of product differentiation and moats built around it. So where you see value occurring in generative AI is companies like Rex and Ramp launching Copilot features or, you know, and making more effective transaction categorization helping you close your books. And that's really material. Um, but if you come to me and you say, hey, we're going to pitch a pre-seed company and it's Ramp plus it generative AI or it's Rex plus generative AI, you know, my question is always, look, these LLMs are available to anybody who can build on top of them. Um, and so just having generative AI in your product offering is not enough. What are you actually doing that's new, that's going to catalyze consumers or customers to switch over to what you're building and that can't be replicated by everybody else who has the same access to these underlying models. Um, and so I think even within FinTech, you see kind of like a big rush towards standard AI right now. I think that that's the right long-term perspective. But in the immediate term, you're going to have some crowding where too many investors are chasing too few opportunities and those opportunities haven't been proven out yet. So it's a, it's a little bit of a convoluted answer, but I, I think Long-term, generative AI will play a role in every product that we're investing in. Short-term, I think probably too many people are chasing after the same too few opportunities right now. Yeah. 100% of my portfolio companies will use AI and generative AI and are using it. I consider 0% of my portfolio companies to be AI fintech companies because the reality is it's a very regulated industry that has a lot of other complexity and at the core of the product might have a very important component that's powered by some sort of AI or machine learning, but usually it's all the other stuff you have to build around it, including the regulatory licensing, or sometimes frankly, just the credibility of the founder to be able to walk into a room to talk to the CRO of like whatever organization he's selling into or the CIO and have the credibility with that individual that they're gonna buy from him. So, it's the way I think about AI is it's a tool that makes investing in fintech companies more exciting to me than ever, but it's not like it's not the defining characteristic of them. And so Nick mentioned subsequent like platform ships, web, um, mobile, and just I forget what the third one you is, but we didn't even talk about cloud, right? So like generative AI is a tool that lets engineers write more code more quickly that does more things. Um, the shift to cloud was similar in that it let engineers not necessarily write more code, but write more code because they didn't have to worry about deploying the code and managing all of the infrastructure and do it more cheaply. I think AI is like even better than an opportunity than like the shift to cloud was for companies to be more cash efficient and build more product more quickly. And that's great because if we have more startups who are able to build more product more quickly, it's going to be great to invest in those companies generally. But are Nick and I excited about investing in AI or an LLM for um, lending and underwriting? No, are we interested in AI or LLM for like a new sort of like OCR, like broadly, probably not. Like there are a lot of categories where you get pitched AI or LLM for it blank, where it's like, well, that's just hard because there's not necessarily a lot of defensibility because the ecosystem is changing so quickly. Awesome. I know we're at time, so I think we'll probably wrap it up here. So I just want to say thank you to both of you as, as students interested in FinTech. It's just so energizing to listen to two people who are so plugged in and so optimistic about the sector. 
Uh, I'm setting a reminder for our club to, to reach back out in a year so we can continue our, our old cadence we got going. Uh, and so we can hear more about how your, uh, I guess at that point, multi-stage AI-focused funds will be doing. Uh, so, so thank you both. I really appreciate the time and uh, we'll thank talk you. to you soon. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks. And look forward to having more Warden students uh, moving out to the Bay Area <laughs> in New York and joining great fintech companies. Yeah. The, so spread the word. The SF community, <laughs> the municipal like, you know, uh, office should give you some rebate racks for <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right i do not receive yeah any sort of financial incentives <laughs> from either the city or for warden's uh, west coast campus <laughs> all right thanks guys thank you for listening to today's episode of the warden fintech podcast if you enjoyed the show please leave a review and give us a follow on social media we appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where we'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Zoe.